In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today is the feast of Christ the King. Correct? Yes? No? Well, if Christ the King were not such a recent innovation, if you like, not only in the church, it was brought in by Pope Pius XI in 1925 and fixed by a motu proprio of Paul VI in that wonderful reformation which came to the Roman Catholic Church in Vatican II, fixing the feast of Christ the King, our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, as the last Sunday in the liturgical year. All right. You will remember that we celebrated the feast of Christ the King where it belonged, the Sunday before the first Sunday of Advent. And before that feast, we had a whole kingdom season, which is an Anglican response to that feast. So here we are today again on Palm Sunday, celebrating Christ the King. What is the difference? Well, you can start by looking at your order of service. You will see that today there is no law and there is no forgiveness. <laughs> we have a dec no decalogue, no duologue, and if you look for the confession and absolution, you are not going to find it. Uh, I point out to you that anyone that worked under the 1979 prayer book, this was a completely acceptable, even an encouraged way to deal with the book 52 weeks of the year. Both the reading of the law and the absolution and confession were made optional in 1979. You will find that we never uh, exercise those options, and even on Easter Day, you will start with the law and you will have the absolution and the confession. They are absolutely vital to our health. Why do I take it away today? Because I don't care about your health. No, I do care about your health. But Palm Sunday, as Alan reminded us this morning, is the beginning of a week in which we walk with Jesus, if you like, in real time. Until Easter Day, the scripture allows us to clock real time. And that's a very important thing. Um, Holy Scripture itself is often not concerned about chronology. There are theological reasons. It starts with the book Genesis for introducing things. And our notions of chron chronology, as I got from my teacher Bruce Waltke, are really secondary to the Bible's interests in the theological sense of priority. Um, however, this week is a radical difference. And if there is a theme to Palm Sunday, it is, if you like, getting ahead of Jesus. So, even in the Reformation tradition, we would have had read the Passion Narrative. Well, the Passion Narrative is really meant to be read, well, at midnight on Thursday night. Well, I admit, we should cut ourselves a bit of slack. But we are reading the Passion Narrative as an act of remembrance on Good Friday. And we do not read it ahead. I think we're probably the only church I know of, except for one in Alabama, Paul Zoll's church, that treats Palm Sunday as Palm Sunday. And there's a reason for this, I think. No law, no gospel. The reason is that without these elements, the whole thing becomes rather unhinged. 
And it is in that instability, and I would call radical state of spiritual danger, that the whole passion begins, both on that Sunday, if you like, in Jerusalem, uh, two millennia ago, and in our lives as we walk the Via Crucis, the Via Dolorosa, uh, each moment of our lives. Unlike the unfettered celebration which attends the November solemnity of Christ the King, which is all white and gold, this Sunday in red is drenched in irony. I've often said there's no room for irony in worship, but this Sunday is very different. There is an irony that hurts here. The church, for instance, looks like a wedding gone wrong. Instead of confetti, the floor is littered with palm fronds and rose petals. Come Good Friday, these same palms, spiky to the touch and crunchy to the feet, evoke with the red petals the scourges and drops of Jesus' blood. As people come forward and kneel on those spiky palms at the foot of the cross, the sense is very much that the party is over. The decorations are all over the street from that big celebration on Palm Sunday, but the party is definitely over. Why so bittersweet? No, why so bitter? For us, the pro proclamation of Christ as king is not even short-lived. It never happens. It falls hollow and redundant on the deaf ears of the same crowd who shout crucify him with a deafening roar, calling for the release of a common criminal in his place. An example of substitutionary atonement turned totally on its head, if you like. Uh, Jesus will set this right on the cross. But a recurring echo in the scriptures themselves, lost on our deaf ears so often, is the momentum behind the expectation that Israel's long-awaited king has finally arrived. For this, we have to get into the habit of reading our Old Testaments more frequently. They are the foundation for everything that comes after. Israel has had many kings. So has Judah just by itself. And I invite you in your mind to scroll through the lists of the kings of divided and undivided Israel. You will not find Jesus among them, interestingly. In the millennium and a bit during which the descendants of Abraham have inhabited this land of promise, dwelt on the ground there, they enjoyed a scant century of real royal kingship, of real rule with the stability, the security, and the sense of God's glory, which God's people came to expect. Saul, David, Solomon, then the whole thing falls apart in slow motion. It breaks apart first in fraternal rivalries, and then the invasions start, one after the other. Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and now the Romans. Exile, the fate of many, has only exacerbated the sense of defeat, depression, and discouragement by adding a layer of glowering suspicion which divides the true Israelites from one another when Jesus comes on the stage on this day. There are different ways of dealing with this day to day, with dealing with defeat. We've seen it in our own time, in that period uh, for Germany between the defeat at the end of World War I and the beginning of World War II. It's like a volcano waiting to erupt. Now most in the uh, Judea of Jesus' time 
simply put up with it. Occupation, well, the consequences for resistance are crucifixion at the most extreme. They're there to behold almost any day, and they will be there to behold at the end of this week. For those who must resist, there are options. For the sectarians, the simply Set yourselves apart, find a cave in Qumran, and hide up there. Go to North Dakota with a few uh, thousand feet of razor wire and some German shepherds and wait for the millennium to complete itself. Set yourselves apart, be separate. For the collaborationists, on the other hand, the idea is to make the best of a bad job. These are the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. Work together with the Romans. Do your best. Let the state and the church work in some kind of harmony. You'll get a lot of breaks. Life will be relatively easy. And what else can you do? For the zealots, uh, you go underground, but the purpose is to be constantly plotting a military coup when the day comes. It's only from this last group that there is any real hope of revolution. And with the return to the land of her, her king and the return of the land to his people, that Jesus coming through the streets seems to promise the zealots are beginning to rise in everybody's mind. They see this as their day. Now to find out how King Jesus actually meets these expectations, we need only look to Rome's assessment at the end of the week. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, will be placarded over his head as he is spiked to a cross. The only thing the high priest will protest against is that Pilate will actually name him with who he really is. You talk about irony. What I have written, what I have written, Pilate will say in utter contempt for the lot of them. Pilate is right, of course, as is Jesus who will look Pilate in the eye and say, yes, I am a king too, but not from this world. I am not a king from, ek, I'm not a king out of, coming from this world. This is exactly where most of us get off too. We hear the other translation, which says, I'm not a king, my kingdom is not of this world, and we think, what a relief. We leave the kingship of Christ to be enjoyed by those who gather about the throne in the revelation to St. John. When will that kingdom be? The plaints of millenarians of all persuasions make the whole thing rather a distasteful joke to the church. When will this day come? It's no wonder that eschatology is by default held in such low esteem by the man of his, in the street. It is not, I promise you, a tool for evangelism. But one aspect of all this which persistently escapes us is the notion that Jesus... I'm jump, jumping to the resurrection, by the way, now we're jumping around. We can't help but looking down the week at this Easter day. The Jesus now alive, now, now alive by everybody's reckoning. Even the prayers that we make this morning will make little sense if he's not alive. At this present moment, wherever he may be, is also right now at this present moment reigning. He is the king of all right now. We've jumped a lot, and the dischronologization is going to be painful, but it comes down to the reality of Holy Week for all of us. 
Where is Jesus? What is he doing? If he's reigning, over what does he reign? And what impact does his reign have over all of us? What does it mean to say that Christ is the king? There are two dozen other ways we can refer to Christ. But to refer to him as king, reigning, king of all, what does that actually mean to us? This kingdom of his is certainly transcendent. Yes, we understand that it is flourishing somewhere beyond space and time. But where does that leave us then? As citizens of two cities, two kingdoms being then parallel universes, The prophets today, and the psalm especially, testify that the king who comes will establish himself unequivocally when he arrives, when he appears. Psalm 72, may his dominion extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. They're meaning from the Gulf of Aqaba down around to the end of Iraq. But we can extrapolate that he means the entire universe. We heard that same Snippet from Zechariah. May his name remain forever to be established as long as the sun endures. These are cosmic images. May all nations, this is unequivocal, be blessed in him and call him blessed. Listen again. May all nations be blessed in him and call him blessed. May his kingly rule bring blessing to Israel? No, all nations. And may they in turn the whole earth by implication, because that is the territory that all nations encompass, return the compliment, praising the God of Israel, the one true God with one heart and one mind and one voice. That's there in the Psalms, at the height of the kingdom. Then David and Solomon must have known about this, maybe even wrote it. Was that part of the mandate they achieved, that Israel would bless all the nations of the earth, that God would reach all the nations of the earth through Israel. Did Israel bless all the nations and lead the world to bless Israel's God? No, they did not. In all that millennium of exposure to all the world's great empires, think about it. In that thousand years of complete exposure rubbing up rubbing up right next to the greatest empires in the world of the time, in the thousand years of all that history and all those history makers, what impact did this little nation have? None. None. Let me say it again. Zero. None. It's heightened all the more by the fleeting whiffs of allegiance that the kings of the nations give, Darius and Ebenezer. But despite their protestations, your God is the greatest thing I've ever seen, nothing sticks. It comes and it goes. Why not? Perhaps because loyalty to the one who reigns, obedience, begins at home. If that's the case, to judge by the prophets, Israel herself did a pretty pathetic job of acting as if her God reigned. Did a pretty poor job of living out her part of the covenant. Did a pretty poor job of exemplifying the glorious kingdom life, which was supposed to be God's gift to the world. 
God's way of bringing the world back, if not into the garden, at least into a garden city, a renewed creation. It was all unbelievably to start with Israel, to emanate from Israel, to flow irresistibly out of Israel and into the neighborhood. Did it? No. So here we are. Who now is Israel? We are Israel. We are the church. To us belong the prophets and the writings. To us, the children of Abraham, were written all the books of the Old Testament. The fact that some other ethnicity in the world chooses to use those is neither here nor there. That will be resolved in Romans 11 when that ethnicity is gathered into the church and not the other way around. We are Israel. We are Abraham's children. Not bad. How are we doing? Not great. But let's look at this in worldly terms. There are two billion Christians, citizens of the kingdom, if you like, in the world today. If you wish to look at it that way, that's about one-third of this planet's population. What nation, what empire even is as big as that? Think about it. So the answer is you've just got to get all the Christians of the world together. And, well, we don't need to go any further than that, do we? <laughs> we can look at this in worldly terms. I don't think God is interested in looking at this in worldly terms. In terms of power, worldly power, worldly <coughs> wisdom, worldly sight. Our God looks at this in another way. Now, it's not that his kingdom is not of this world. If it's not, what world is it then out of, from? What other world is there for him to draw his kingdom? Only this world. And when will his reign start? It has already started. How did it get started? At the foot of the cross. When the king of all creation was placarded, was raised up, was named, was, if you like, lifted up and proclaimed to the world as who he was. Yes? No. Our king began his reign when this creation was formed. Our king Jesus, the Christ, made this creation. So he reigns, and his reign extends back before the beginning of time, before our names were even known to us. They were known to him. Our God reigns. Now, we sometimes sing something like that. Where does he reign, and who? He reigns over us. Do we mean it? Just the question. Do we mean it when we sing, our God reigns? Just a question. Maybe the irony of Palm Sunday is a richer read of reality than most of us would care for. Maybe there should be a Palm Sunday season. I could say then that that season comes to us every day as Christians. And I could leave it there. 
But that is not where our God will leave it. You have to stick with this story through Holy Week. And I will leave you hanging a little bit. But I'll give you a hint that things turn out well. <laughs> and they turn out in a way that nobody at all expected. God comes in to do what only God could do. And that's only the beginning. God continues to come into our lives to do only what he can do through our lives. As Paul said in that beautiful reading, the Holy Spirit in his power can do everything. Everything that human power alone cannot. We learn that as we walk his way this week. But we cannot go around the cross. We cannot expect, as Israel did, to start from our own strength, ramp it up, and go on from there. Our life is a life of returning to the cross. In the meantime, as N.T. Wright has said, we are to plant a tree. Jesus is coming. What are we to do? We're to make this place into a garden. Yes, but one last story about that. A flashback, and then I'm done. A flashback to 20 years ago, when I sat in a landscape architecture studio, beginning a change of life, staring at a 32-inch by 30-inch sheet of 1,000-H paper, plotting with my drafting pens and templates a tall, formal hedge of Otzer Campestra, field maple spaced two meters apart, a long, noble, formal hedge, which would be a perfect foil for a low row of Otzer palmatum, loose and ragged and wild in front of it. In autumn, I thought the purple will play brilliantly against the red and gold in behind. And a thought came to me at that moment. This was the thought. You can plant all the trees you want. You will not change the human heart one bit. Look around you. Where are you? Vancouver. Case closed. <laughs> but when God's word is opened by God's spirit in our lives, and when we accept the death to our dreams, and the implantation of his dreams, which will be a daily, hourly, moment-by-moment moment part of our life in him, when God's word begins to take root and grow in the soil of our lives, then we do indeed look at this world as something transformed, as something beginning to sing the praises of the God who made it. My friends, I'll leave you with one quatrain from this exquisite hymn that we're going to sing at communion. Take it with you, because it points to the mystery and the wonder of the cross, of suffering, of victory, of glory, and the way all these things are tangled together in a way that is beyond the wisdom of God. This lovely 17th century poem by Samuel Crossman, on your insert, you can take it home. My song is love unknown. What a first line. 
How many songs have they written in the last 50 years that have a first line like that? My song is love unknown. We could just hang on with the unknown. My Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown, that they may lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. Next Sunday, the law will be back, confession will be back, and God's gracious word of forgiveness will be back again. Because if there is a word of the gospel, it is this. And all the trees in nature cannot tell us this word, that there is not just law in the world, that there is not just power in the world but that there is forgiveness. And when we know we are forgiven, and when we know that we can give forgiveness, we can love. We can love the unlovely. We can love ourselves. Amen.